You can't look at all your other people through the one or two people who may be taken advantage. That's the worst mistake you can make. That's one of the biggest mistakes you can always make. I'm Adam Connors from NetworkWise and your host of Who's Who in HR. Ask any successful CEO about the most important aspect of their company and they'll inevitably answer their people. And who is it that's responsible for their people? It's human resources. In fact, HR is the backbone of any elite organization. They attract, develop, and engage top talent, progress culture, secure and manage important benefit programs, make sure you're appropriately paid, protect the best interest of each employee and the company, and so much more that quite frankly often gets taken for granted. On Who's Who in HR, I'll have in-depth discussions with well-known human resource leaders who offer insights into who they are, how they got there, and the areas they support. During our conversation, these leaders will reveal beneficial industry advice and innovative trends in the HR space that's contributing to keeping the world's most successful companies at the top of their game. My guest today, Ken Meyer, is a chief human resource officer of a nonprofit that provides wellness and fitness to over 80,000 New Yorkers. His passion for serving other people really shines through during our conversation. Listen in as he gives some tips for new HR professionals and shares what it's like working in the world of nonprofit. Let's dive right in. Ken Meyer, welcome to the show. Thanks for uh, making today happen. No, thank you very much for the invite. Greatly appreciate it. Yeah, we're going to have some fun today. I really like your background. I really like the passion for what you've done. And I'm interested to invite your, and I shouldn't say invite you, but share you and your story and what you do with those that are following Who's Who in HR. So if you wouldn't mind, give a quick synopsis of uh, what you're doing and, uh, and who you are. Sure. I am the Chief Human Resources Officer for a federally qualified health center based in New York City. So what we do is we provide primary care, behavioral health, and care coordination to the underserved communities of Brooklyn, Bronx, Manhattan, and Queens. And we employ over 600 people engaged in that very noble cause. And between all of our programs and by seeing patients, we touch the lives of about 85,000 people annually. Wow, that's powerful. I love your commitment to this field. You're 30 years in healthcare, correct? Actually, I'm 30 years in HR, but I'm actually 42 years in healthcare. I got my first job in healthcare the same way a whole lot of people get their first jobs in healthcare. That's through their mother or father or some other family member working in a healthcare setting Mm -hmm. and saying, hey, when I'm 16 years old, saying, hey, listen, they have jobs open at the hospital or whatever. You should apply. And they put your name in. You go and you apply. And again, in New York City, I don't know if this is across the country, but I know in New York City, healthcare is pretty much a family employer, which on the negative side, it's when a healthcare strike happens, it's doubly and triply devastating because a lot of times, well, not a majority, but a significant amount of times when that happens 
entire families are put out of work. That's like the police also in fire. Yes. I didn't know that about healthcare. It's interesting. You know, something else that you mentioned that I think is really important too is the power of your passion, how you described it as a noble profession. Oh, it's funny. I was, I was talking to a group of nurse practitioners who were still in school and nurses that were in school or, and looking to become nurse practitioners once. And I said, you know what? When you're looking at your first employment experience when you get out of school, you're going to meet with a lot of people and they're going to tell you, well, come work for me and you're going to change the world. I got news for you. Those people are lying to you. You're not going to go and change the world. But I'll tell you, you come work for us and you'll be able to help that immigrant family who has a husband and a wife and children and have that father be able to come to us for health care so they can go out and earn money to help their families. You'll be able to do that. You'll be seeing children who, because of the work you're doing in controlling the asthma and things like that, that little kid now, that kid can play Little League. That kid can play basketball. That kid can play soccer. That kid can participate in gym. All those things. So are you going to save the world? No. But are you going to be able to positively impact their worlds on a daily basis? The answer is absolutely yes, you will. That's what I tell people. And that's what we do. That's awesome. That's about having a purpose. That gives you something to get up every day because you know that you're making an impact. And then there have been studies after studies that show people that have a purpose are higher performers. They stick around longer. They bring a happier energy to the workforce, which obviously through osmosis trickles down throughout an organization. So it's really cool to hear your passion. Thank you. So I'd love to uh, let the audience get to know you a little bit. I've got a section I call it rapid fire, where I kind of throw out some quick questions for you and give an opportunity to kind of share or get it, learn a little bit more about you. Are you ready to rock? I'm ready to rock. All right, let's do it. Where is your happy place, Ken? My happy place is when I'm walking. I'm a big believer in getting the 10,000 steps in a day. And I'm a big believer in walking. When I'm on my walks, that's when I'm happiest. Great. Tell me something that most people don't know about you. Okay. So when I was a lot younger, I used to sneak into CBGBs when I was underage so I can watch my favorite punk rock bands like the Ramones and the Talking Heads. You, you got to see them? Yes. Oh, I used to go to CBGBs also. How sad was it when they shut it down? Yeah, I know. Although I have to tell you that when you go past there, I don't know if you've been past there since they shut it down. No. Exactly. John Barbados has his, like, you know, his downtown boutique there, and it has, like, this very hip vibe to it. So and I think it, it sort of captures a little bit of what CBGBs used to be if you walk inside. I mean, it should. That place is like a historical society, and from my perspective, I've probably been there a hundred times conservatively. Yeah. I used to like the place next door to it called Great Gildersleeves. You used to see, be able to see decent bands in there. Never went there. Interesting. So Jets or Giants? Jets. My poor Jets. <laughs> right, we're not even going to go any further than that. That's all we got to yeah. say. What are your thoughts on SHRM or, or some of the other HR associations that are out there? Well, currently, I'm actually on the board of New York City SHRM. Okay, and that's SHRM's largest local chapter. 
and, and we're also the oldest. Our chapter number is actually 0001. We're the first global <laughs> chapter. And one of the things I am very fond of saying is that I am not where I am today without being a member of New York City SHRM and SHRM. I think they offer incredible educational opportunities, way to advance professional development. And I would encourage any HR professional to number one, become a member of SHRM, but second, and probably even more importantly, get involved in your local chapter. It is incredibly important to not only your individual professional development, but also to the professional development of others. That's the key right there. You nailed it. And, and what are things that people can be doing to get involved? The first thing you should do is find out who runs your local chapter. No, just send them an email. A lot of them have websites. Go on their website, see what they offer. Uh, some are small, some are large. And they're always looking for volunteers for something, whether it's for membership or professional development or communications, things like that. So it's just, there are so many opportunities and that's a great way to network with other HR professionals. And it's incredibly important for those folks that are just starting out in HR. Completely agree. So what prompted you to get on the board? I've always been active in the association and then I became the chair of a special interest group. It's called the Managers Forum, which is funny because I don't think there's an individual who's part of the special interest group who is actually an HR manager. We've all essentially rose to, we're all at higher levels than just an HR manager. Mm. But a lot of us started out as HR managers, joined the special interest group, and through the learning opportunities, we were able to build our own resumes and progress and move up. It's great to hear. So let's transition more into the work that you're doing right now. I, I would love to learn about the community that you serve and what it means to be an HR leader in healthcare or, or just the nonprofit space where you're serving, you know, such a diverse community. Yeah. I mean, first of all, the people who come work at CHN, they are literally the strength of the organization because it's the type of organization where, you know, where you're really there to serve others. That, that's what your job is. Your job is to serve others. And we do a lot of recruitment and we do a lot of hiring from within the communities we actually serve, which is a strength, but it's also a challenge. Like, say, for example, one of the biggest effects that our organization has is that in cases of inclement weather or in cases of like now we have a healthcare emergency with COVID, when they sh shut down the schools, that dramatically impacts my staff because they're not only working for CHN, but they're also becoming a part-time teacher and all of these things. It's incredible. And that's, and that is because we recruit from the communities that we serve. Wow. Um, and I think a lot of our folks bring that kind of, it's, it's a way for them to serve the community that they live in. So it gives them some intrinsic satisfaction. In addition to that, they know the communities that they serve. So if something isn't working, they're able to say, hey, listen, this doesn't work for my folks. And here's why. 
Is it similar to like community policing in a sense, again, by the importance of knowing your community and those that you serve? I, I would say yes, because like say somebody like me, I may think I know the community, but there are times when I don't have a clue and I really depend on the folks that, you know, work with me to say, hey, and, and I, and I, one of my things is why I say, hey, listen, if I'm doing something wrong, you need to hold up your hand and speak up because, I mean, you need to teach me because last thing you want me to do is to be wallowing in my own ignorance. Then all of a sudden the poop hits the fan and then you're coming up to me and says, you know, I meant to tell you about that, but, and I'm like, that's the last thing I want to hear. <laughs> and you know what? A buddy of mine made the Navy a career. And he went to like officers candidate school and things like that. And he used to talk about getting your C bars and he would talk about it as, and then you get respect because when you are instructing and you're doing this, you've been out to sea. Okay. So that means the people you are instructing, they have a lot more respect for you because, Hey, listen, you've actually been out to sea. So the same thing where like, okay, even though I, I live in a very nice section of the Bronx, but you know, I, I did go to school in the South Bronx, 160, 164th Street and Walton Avenue, three blocks away from Yankee Stadium, and played basketball when I was a lot younger all across the city. And I grew up in Washington Heights, in the Washington Heights section of Manhattan, three blocks away from George Washington High School, and came from two working parents and my, my dad worked a lot of overtime to try and get us those little extra things and things like that. So even though I come from that background, I still have not experienced what many of my employees have experienced mm. when it comes to growing up and things like dealing with the police and things like that. I have not experienced that. I'm lucky that I haven't. And that's where my employees need to teach me, but that I shouldn't say they need to see I need to learn so much more about that. I like that perspective. How do you take care of people that are taking care of other people, especially during a pandemic? I mean, I, I mean, again, that's just got to be so much to shoulder for a lead in HR. Yes. A lot of like how I take care of people is first is really is through coaching my managers. I understand that what you, what you need, what, what I tell my managers is that, listen, I understand stuff got to get done. Don't get me wrong. I mean, that's why we're here. We're here to do work. That being said, though, before you're ready to like have that sit down with the employee because something ain't going right or something like that, you know what? Take a deep breath. Take it easy. We're in an environment that nobody has ever been in before. Take a deep breath. Take a look at what other struggles this person is having. And instead of dropping discipline on the person, let's try and coach the person to performing. Find out what is going on. And you know what? The 10 other people who report to you might have the same stuff going on. But you know what? They may be a little stronger than this person. So therefore, they may need some additional help. The bottom line is that you need them to get to a level that they're productive and they're feeling productive and they're not doing that at the cost of their own health, their family's health. So that's 
one way I do it. And the second way is is dealing directly with employees and employee issues and, and making sure you're administering your practices, right? Things like that. Because during a time like this, are some people going to take advantage? I would like to think no, but I'm also not that naive. Maybe there will be, but you know what? Just realize that, yes, that is going to happen. You can't look at all your other people through the one or two people who may be taking advantage. That's the worst mistake you can make. That's one of the biggest mistakes you can always make. Yeah, that's a good, I, I like that perspective. And yeah. you're definitely, I, I like your approach with empathy, which uh, obviously has worked. Now, I've got to think of other challenges that you're facing has got to be just funding. Can you explain how funding for your organization works? Like how much of it is state and how much is state government? Like, like how much of that is coming from that source? Sure. So our annual budget is about $100 million. I know that seems like a lot of money, but when you're providing care to 85,000 people and you're paying over 600 employees to do that, and you have 20 different facilities across four boroughs, all of a sudden that hundred million gets spent pretty quick. So essentially our funding is we get grants from the federal government. We do get some state grants for particular programs and then it's revenues from operations. So approximately with the federally qualified health center, and this is everyone, your Medicaid population is going to be approximately somewhere between 60 and 65% of your patients. About another 25% of your patients are going to be undocumented, uninsured folks. And then the remainder are going to be people who are on Medicare or other commercial insurance. That's how we get the revenue from those operations. Now, for the folks that are undocumented, uninsured, and their self-pay, they do pay us what they can when they can. But I'm incredibly proud to say we never turn anybody away because of an ability to pay. And how does the funding affect the rules of your organization? Well, there are some things we can do and there are some things we can't do because of funding. For example, like one of the things that we're able to do is we are able to provide very good benefits to folks, relatively small cost out of pocket. Benefits to your employees? Yes. Okay. To to our employees. So that's one way we're able to, that it affects it. Are our salaries the highest? The answer is no, they're not. But with the type of organization that we are, it's like we can offer things like better quality of life. Like if you go to work in a hospital, are you going to make more money? Yeah, you're going to make more money. But you may have to work every other weekend. You may have to rotate evenings and nights. You may have to work overtime. So from a quality of life standpoint, we have a lot to offer someone. Do you ever have to compete for resources, though, with like <laughs> other departments? Or how are you? Do you ever pay for things yourself? There are times that I'll pay for things myself. There are times when, that's a very good question. Thanks for asking that. I mean, when I can, like if there's an educational program that has a fee to it, I'll just pay that. 
I don't put in for that. That's, and that's just me personally. I th- And I think a number of my colleagues do the same thing. So you're not making as much money as you could elsewhere and you're still doing these kinds of things. Oh yeah. That's getting back to the nobleness and just believing in the cause. And that's powerful. There are a lot of people that make a lot of money that I've worked with in past companies and they're like, submit that could be like a toll, a $3 toll or something. And they're going to, you know, submit that expense. So it's so nice and refreshing to hear you know, what you're doing and the sacrifices you're making. I'm sorry to cut you off. You know, it's funny. My son works, my son works in finance and we have a lot of conversations around performance and things like that. And he's, and he says to me, dad, I can never understand why you never went to work in finance. You would be great in my environment and things like that. I said, yeah, you're right. And, but you know what? I I don't think I'd be happy. And that's what I said. And, and it's not like the folks in that work in finance don't work in the public good because I think they do. They just do something different. For example, how they, how do folks in finance, they work to invest money and things like that. Well, a lot of times that the money that their investment is somebody's goes all the way back to somebody's 401k plan or a pension plan. So then this way, when they do get older and they do retire, they have enough money that saved up for themselves to live a comfortable retirement to provide for those needs that they that may have to come up they enable be people to buy homes to uh, have a better living situation and all those things that like in the finance world i mean when it boils down to it i mean a lot of it that's in the public good too i love that perspective i've had that same argument or i've uh, or discussion i should say that you want them to make money because if they're making money there's going to be taxes that are paid and those taxes are going to get trickled down into your organization so yeah. we all need each other yes absolutely yeah speaking of finance and nonprofit I, I, can you tell me about the magic of salary accrual certainly this is something that i became painfully aware of when i worked early in my career in the early 90s for a child and family services agency. And this was an agency that did some awesome, excellent work because we did foster care adoption, preventive services, and group residences for teens. And it's the first place where I ever worked where we actually tracked salary accruals on each position, meaning that Somebody works in a position and then they leave. And then it takes you a period of time to fill that position. Mm. Well, that gap in between the time that person left and the time their accrued leave was paid and the time you hire somebody, there's like a block of budgeted money there that is unused. And we used to now some places, I, I call it salary accrual. Some people call it vacancy savings and things like that. For example, one organization I worked at pretty much had a target. You had to have 6% vacancy savings in your department, and you weren't allowed to fill a position unless you were at or above that target. If you were like, if you were at like 4% or 3% of vacancy savings, then like they wouldn't let you fill a position. Mm. believe it or not so so the thing is is that when doing that especially when you're a nonprofit, mm. you can use that money to like say for example one of the things we did was we had a hard time recruiting master's level social workers to do foster care and adoption casework now 
foster care and adop- an adoption casework is tough work. And I have so much admiration and respect for people who still do that. The level of out of the, I would say out of the 50 or 60 or 70 caseworkers we had working for our organization, I had one person at the MSW level doing that work, just one. But through using our vacancy savings, our salary accruals and things like that, we were able to push through an adjustment in the salary scale where it went from one to 10 in like the period of a year and a half. And to this day, and that was my goodbye yellow brick road moment (laughs) where it's like, I know it was early in my career that I did it. And I've done a lot of good work work over the years. I still consider that to be one of my highest accomplishments. Yeah. That's a a good one. Yeah. (laughs) So we're running a little tight on time. I'd love to know what would you suggest for those that are listening? What are are the biggest pros of working for a nonprofit? Obviously a, a con is you're not getting paid like maybe someone else at your peer, but what are some of the other pros? What are the reasons you're, I'm assuming you're sleeping well at night or hopefully you're sleeping well at night? Yes, yes. I I would say the pros are more often than not when you work for a nonprofit organization, you're working for a truly mission-driven organization. And there's something really cool about that. Mm -hmm. And I know that I work at a really cool place because where I was working prior to this, the medical director for the facility, when he found out I was leaving and then he found, and I described where I was going, he told me, Ken, that place you're going to work sounds really cool. So I know it's cool. (laughs) (laughs) And, and there, there is something just like really cool about that working for a mission driven organization. Now, all types of organizations across the United States have missions. Absolutely, they do. And working for a nonprofit, I think it's working for a mission-driven nonprofit having to having to do with making people's lives better. I mean, up to like, because there's not there's working for a nonprofit, then there's working for a nonprofit. Like, say for example, up until like two or three years ago, the National Football League was a nonprofit organization. Really? Uh, Yes. The teams are profit-making enterprises, but the actual entity of the NFL was a nonprofit organization. I think Roger Goodell said, yeah, that's really not a good look for us. I think we better become a for-profit corporation. And that's what happened. (laughs) That's hilarious. I mean, he makes, what does he make? He makes like $40 million a year too, doesn't Uh he? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, hey, he does a great job. Don't get me wrong. But I mean, but when you think about it, like the NFL being a like a nonprofit entity, it's just to me, it's hilarious. But I say working for a mission driven nonprofit, it does give your life purpose. That's fantastic. So if you have time, I'd love to ask you one more question. Sure. What was the best advice that someone ever gave you? And then what would be some good advice that you would share with the audience today? Best piece of advice that was ever given to me was given to me by my father who used to drill this into me. He used to say, never carry a grudge. The Mm. only person who gets hurt by carrying a grudge is you. 
the old Borscht Belt comedian, Buddy Hackett, said it differently. He said, never carry a grudge while you're carrying the grudge to the other guys out dancing, which I really love. <laughs> but yeah, he said, learn to let things go. Because if you don't, you're the one who's going to end up being hurt, not the other person. Because I think it was Medgar Evers who said this. He said, hate is a terrible thing. Um, the only one who gets hurt by hate is the one who's doing the hating because of all the people you hate, 50% of them do not know that you hate them. And the other 50%, they may know, but they just don't care that you do. There's no reason for it. Yeah, that's good advice. I've heard something similar. It's like, don't carry the grudge because it's like taking a, a poison pill and expecting the other person to die or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that, yes. Uh, yes, I've heard that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh man, Ken, great conversation. So many good takeaways. I got to tell you, I love, again, it's, you're so passionate about serving other people. Uh, a lot of takeaways, whether it's just your management style, that empathy. I think that's, uh, there's a lot to be said about that. I really like that approach by not blaming everybody for the few that, that take advantage of things. Uh, really interesting how your, or I forgot what you called it, uh, vacancy savings or the salary accrual. That's awesome. And I, I hope other people that are listening, they can, if they're not familiar with that term or how to do that, that's something that they can look into. I mean, you, you obviously have had to be really nimble and really creative to do what you do on the level that you're doing. And I tip my hat for you and I really appreciate what you're doing. I've always been a for-profit guy. And now I feel a little bit better about being for-profit because you've made me feel better that at least my taxes at least are going towards something good. So, so, <laughs> so thank you for that. Um, I, I really appreciate everything you're saying. Thank you very much. You got it. Make it a great day. Thank you for coming on the show. All right. Thanks a lot. Take care. Have a good one. Many thanks for listening to Who's Who in HR. If you're looking to connect with more top-level HR professionals, be sure to log on to NetworkWise.com to find out how you could be part of an HR mastermind group. Also, subscribe to our newsletter to stay up to date on everything happening with NetworkWise. In the interim, make it a great day and remember to always NetworkWise. Network Wise.